2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the 300th episode of the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? Play the fireworks sounds. <laughs> Blast the uh, public domain trumpets. It's the Longform Podcast 300th episode. Max, did you ever think we'd be here? Did not. Did not. In fact, I didn't even realize we were going to be here. I feel like it is a sign of how much we plan for this momentous episode that Evan is not even in the country nor a part of this. I think it's a great testament to uh, the staying power of us never changing anything about the show that when you were like, what are we doing for the 300th episode? I was like, "Uh, what happened during the 200th episode? Neither of us could remember. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Evan is in Iceland watching uh, World Cup soccer. Both of us are very jealous of him. And uh, Iceland's looking it. good, right? We're potentially looking at Iceland making it through. Uh, by the time this airs, we will know the answer to that question. But it look—it's not looking good. Okay. Okay. Well, we're pulling for you. Uh, pulling for you, Evan. Uh, uh, I ask you. Uh, I ask you quite sincerely again for the second week in a row. Who is on the show this week? This week on the show is a writer named Mei Zheng. Uh, she was based for most of her career in Kabul. Uh, she's back in New York now. She has written uh, several investigations uh, from Afghanistan that we have posted on long form. And we talked about uh, what it was like to freelance from there. She moved there with like no contacts at any publications or very few and very few clips and uh, and made it work. And um, she also wrote a piece for Wired recently about Kim Wall, uh, the journalist who was murdered in Denmark. Uh, Kim was also a really close friend of May's. Oh, that and, that story uh, was by her. Okay, I read that story and I did not realize that was that was her. Yeah, it was by her. So we talked about what it's like to um, report your friend's murder. Yeah, oh, this um, I, I look forward to this conversation. This should be interesting. She she was uh, she was incredible. I understand that we have a slightly unusual message this week from our uh, friends at uh, Mailchimp. Not really unusual in the overall sense, but unusual in us repeating ourselves uh, 300 times in a row and more or less the exact same pattern. Read this summer, Aaron. Read this summer to. is Mailchimp's. You you always are, but read this summer dot com is Mailchimp's uh, summer reading program. It's a list curated by the great Shay Serrano. And uh, there's a whole bunch of incredible writers, novelists, poets, essayists, and uh, they've all got books up there. Jonathan Abrams, guest of the Long Form Podcast, has his uh, oral history of The Wire as part of the list. And uh, one thing that binds these writers together is uh, they're all great. The second one is they're all going to be with Shay at the AJC Decatur Book Festival uh, Labor Day weekend. I'm envious. This is the thing that, it's you the thing that uh, last year. we did last year. Yeah, I experienced uh, significant FOMO. Uh, it wasn't even just a fear. I did miss out, and uh, everyone seemed to have a pretty good time. 
Yeah, it was a it was a great time. So if you are looking for something to read this summer, go to readthissummer.com. Uh, here is Max with May Jung. All right, you ready? Woo! Ready. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, May. Hi. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm sorry that you went to the wrong address. It's okay. We're gonna I went to a... two wrong addresses, actually. You did? Oh, right, because you went to the Correct. <laughs> first one that I told you to go to. Well, you should feel uh, just extreme honor, maybe the most honor you've ever felt. Because? This is the first time this recording studio has ever been used. It looks great. Things are working, I think. We'll see. We'll see. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, can you tell me about the moment that you decided that you were going to go to Afghanistan? <laughs> wow, okay, we're just going to start right away. Um, I just realized that people that I was jealous of or experienced envy for were people who were living abroad. And Where were you at the time? I, well, I was going to school in Toronto um, at university, I remember, always sort of, yeah, like looking at foreign correspondence and wishing I were... I would do that. But as you know, I mean, when I was in college, you know, there would have been X amount of foreign bureaus at newspapers, and that just whittled down to really a handful. Mm -hmm. And the only sort of traditional path that I saw ahead of me was doing the Metro Beat and then spending 10 years at a newspaper and then like maybe hoping that they'll send you to like Brazil or something and then like working your way up in this like circuitous way. And I just like didn't want to do that. When was that? Um, so I graduated in 2010. Okay. So 2010, it felt like there was still something of a path. You just weren't that interested in the path. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, it was very obvious to me that I wouldn't either get it or I would run out of patience along the way. Like when you're like 21, 22, and you have like your whole 20s in front of you, and you see people who are just starting to do cool things like in their 30s, you're like, fuck that. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> Had you always been like uh, such an impatient person? Yes. <laughs> so in your impatience, how do you like get up the nerve to get yourself to couple? Like I also was like impatient at that age, right? Mm. Uh, but I didn't go to Afghanistan. So help me understand how you did that. Where did you go? Uh, Florida. Same thing. No, no, it's different. It is though. I think people build it up in their heads like, oh, like Iraq, it must have been so dangerous. Kabul, like how do you live there? But it's a city like any other city and people live there and they like go to bakeries and send their kids to school and it's it's another place where people live. And I think it helped that I didn't think about it too much. I hadn't like built it up in my head too much. So I actually went because I was in Pakistan hoping to live there and work there. And I went to Kabul to pick up a visa and I was supposed to go back to Karachi, and I just never did. <laughs> but, I mean, did you know who you were going to be writing for when you left? No, of course not. Well, that is the thing that I'm trying to get at here is, like, that seems like a, um, a potentially risky move or at least, like, a nervy thing to do. I know, but so is going to law school, and then you're in debt, right? Yeah, yes. Or, like, going to Hollywood to pursue an acting career or trying to be a chef or, I mean, like, everything is risky. And, actually, the book that really helped me crystallize that was of all ones Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forever. I remember I read it when it came out and 
the author's note talks about Catherine Boo. You know, she has this ailment, and she's trying to figure out, you know, can I really devote three years of my life into covering a a slum in a country that is not my own? And I think in the process, she says that at some point she gets up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water from the kitchen, and she trips over a copy of a thesaurus that's on the floor and breaks a rib or something. <laughs> and her lesson is that you can die doing anything, <laughs> which I really took to heart. <laughs> Was it like uh, I'm just gonna keep asking for about this for a second because I can just like I'd like to understand it. When you're getting on that plane, you've like made this choice. Were you not like thinking about it, or were you just not second guessing it? Like, I'm certainly just like projecting my own like anxiety. <laughs> I know the questions are so you. revealing, <laughs> <laughs> but like I don't quite get how you can't be nervous. But maybe you just weren't. I mean, of course you are, but I think you develop these. Strategies for survival, right? And one sort of antidote to anxiety that I found is that I just choose not to indulge in those questions because there's also no point, really. This is gonna be a long, like, hour. You I know, know it's gonna be this one meta question you asking a hundred different ways, and I'll try my best to answer. <laughs> but so, for example, I went to an amazing school in Canada that was free for me, and I had amazing professors. And one of them, I remember, he had his office hours nine to ten on Tuesdays, and I would go quite often because I really liked him. And he is this incredible scholar, like a Holocaust scholar. And his father had owned a chain of hotels in Tel Aviv or something. And apparently, when he was my age, he was trying to decide, like, do I go into the hospitality business or do I do this other thing that I'm interested in? And I think either he realized this or someone told him, but the thing that he told me was that like whatever decision you make will be the right one, and it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. Had I like gone to law school, I think I would have been perfectly happy. Actually, it would have been fine. So things are just always probably been... not true, actually. But yeah, <laughs> that's a lie. All right. Well, I mean, lie if it's all worst. just gonna always work out, then it's always just gonna all work out. If you come from a certain socioeconomic background, it's a pretty big asterisk. It's true. Can we talk practicalities then and get out of this existential anxiety line? Uh, okay, so not a care in the world. It's all going to work out. Whatever decision you make is the right decision. <laughs> you make me sound like an insane person, <laughs> but go on. I'm just, I'm just reflecting back what I've heard. <laughs> so Kabul is like a, a place like any other place, city like any other city. People live there. How do you, showing up without a ton of context or knowing a ton of people, how do you navigate the place? So I first spent the first six months in bed reading like all the things. I read every single book that was ever written about Afghanistan, guaranteed. <laughs> and like articles, like reports that's been written, I just read everything. And in part because I felt like I didn't know anything. And not that I know anything now, but I think I have a better sense of what I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a feel certain sort of cumulative sense of knowledge if you consume that much stuff in the beginning. How different do you think it is consuming that when you're in the place? It makes a world of difference. I mean, it's kind of like when you go on a holiday, you want to like, I don't know, if you go to Russia, maybe you read Dostoevsky. Like it does, I think, enhance the reading experience for sure. Like reading Pamuk in Turkey. There's a reason why people do that. It's corny, but it works. <laughs> yeah. And... Yeah, and just sitting in on at like, you know, dinner party conversations just by osmosis, I learned so much. How do you even get to dinner parties though? Like it's uh Max, it's like a one bar town. Like everybody knows everybody else. 
did you know people who were there when well, you got there? Well, so my former partner was very good friends with a lot of Afghanistan people, experts. And we sort of ran this house that had like one and a half guest rooms. And I remember one year we were trying to figure out how many years of the days of the year when we didn't have a house guest. And it was like four days or something <laughs> obnoxious like that. So we always had like a rotating cast of people mm-hmm. come and visit. So there were a couple of people there you knew? Yeah. I mean, like everyone who's been on this show who's covered Afghanistan has stayed at my house. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> how do you start finding stories? Same way? Same dinner parties? Maybe another no. maybe another way of asking that question is like, how do you, if it's that insular and it's a one bar town, how do you like break out of that and find stories? So that was a struggle, right? I moved there first week, January 2013. I was told all oh, the parties over, you missed the whole big surge, whatever. And it did feel that way. But I think actually being there at that time was great for me because I really had to find stories that were incredible stories that just happened to be taking place in Afghanistan. And that was a really good lesson. Um, How do you find them? You just, I mean, the only difference I think now, me like 2018 versus me 2013 is that I just have more faith in my ideas and curiosity. So I think before I was a little bit, I don't know if this is an interesting thing, but it interests me. And I don't know if anyone else might be, but I'm just going to check it out. But now I just like know in my heart that if something intrigues me, there will be others who are intrigued as well. Did you like follow your nose in ways that didn't pay off when you were there? I went down so many rabbit holes. I can't even tell you. There are like, like what? just terrible Scribner files of, <laughs> to nowhere. I mean, yeah, so many. I mean, couldn't even tell you like I... I thought I might do a story about, like, I might follow, like, a Afghan divorce. I thought I might file, like, a divorce attorney and figure out how that would go. I looked into that. I wanted to maybe do a story about people who are being sent back, deported back to Afghanistan and are either shunned by the community because they'd chosen Europe versus jihad or, or, I mean, I had so many ideas. I wanted to do a story about an investigation into all the airstrikes that have been happening in the past couple of years. I mean, I've definitely gone down roads that led me to nowhere. And were you doing those all on spec? Like, did you show up there with relationships with outlets? No. So how does that happen? Uh, So actually, the first person who gave me an assignment was Nathan Thornburg, who was on the podcast. Our old office mate. Yeah. he. um, I cold emailed him. I think I had another friend who had started writing for them. And I emailed, and they said yes to two pitches, and literally that was the beginning. Those were the first two stories I did. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and uh, tell you a little bit about some sponsors making today's show possible. First up, Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. They've got three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. That sounds uh, intimate because sleeping is an intimate experience, and you got to get it right. That's why you should try Casper. 
Not to mention the breathable design, which helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. It's delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that, sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. No more going to the mattress store. And the best part is you can be totally sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-a-trial. After all, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be uh, comfortable while you do so. I am actually very actively trying to get better about sleep. I have learned uh, recently that I'm old now, and uh, I can't get by on five or six hours anymore. I am a like, zombie asshole in the morning unless I get my eight hours of sleep, and that is why a mattress is so important, and that's why Casper has done me so right. It's just uh, feels great. It really does cradle your natural geometry. Try Casper right now. You're going to get 50 bucks off a select mattress by visiting casper.com slash longform and using longform at checkout. That's casper.com slash longform, offer code longform for 50 bucks off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions, they apply. Also sponsoring the show this week, a new podcast from Netflix. It's called You Can't Make This Up. And uh, it's all about the true stories that sound too crazy to be real that are told in Netflix documentaries. Maybe Wild Wild Country, that one grab you? Evil Genius, Icarus, the uh, Oscar-winning documentary by Brian Fogel. There's all kinds of incredible uh, documentaries on Netflix, and every show of You Can't Make This Up features conversations between podcasters, journalists, comedians, and the people who made some of your favorite Netflix series. Uh, I should tell you, uh, stay tuned to You Can't Make This Up because I am hosting an episode I interviewed uh, Brian Fogel who directed Icarus, which is a crazy holy shit story. If you have not seen it, go watch it right now. And then tune in to uh, You Can't Make This Up. It's a really good show. They've got all kinds of different podcasters. Kelly McEvers did an episode. Lindsay Weber from Who Weekly did an episode. It's entertaining as all hell. And it's made by Pineapple Street Media, which is a uh, company that I work at. So check it out. You Can't Make This Up. It's available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or your preferred podcast destination. Go listen to it, subscribe, review, do all that good stuff. But for now, here's the rest of my conversation with May. I know a little bit about the finances of Runs of Kingdoms and, and maybe some of the other places you were writing for. They don't always pay a ton. No, of course not. You know, the first, I did a story for the New Yorker website and I think they paid me $300. So how are you making ends meet? So I made no money the first year. I think I may have made like $10,000 the first year, actually. And then um, and then I just got into the like grant game. So I applied to a bunch of grants. And at some point, I just started getting my expenses covered. And so at least I wouldn't be losing money. Yeah. When you were looking for stories on spec. Yeah. And then that's how it goes. I mean, it's really, really tough. I don't want to make it seem like it's, like, super easy. And you are kind of making it seem know, like it's super I feel, easy. I, I feel like we should talk about other stuff, maybe. Like, they're really, really rough periods. Okay. Tell yeah. me about the really, really rough periods. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, you are making it sound easy. It, to I me, know, moving to Afghanistan without contacts at publications, hoping to make it work, I feels fucking daunting. Well, I did it with New York, right? Like, I moved here. I didn't mean to, but I moved here last year, and... May, this past May is the first month that I'm telling people I, I'm based in New York now. And same thing, like, I was like, can I afford New York? This crazy, expensive city. Like, I don't really have a good community here. 
what will I do? I mean, in Kabul, there's a certain brand of solipsism that makes you think that it's at the center of the world. And not that New York is either. But so it was really hard. And especially because I'd moved there when I was so young and my whole identity was enmeshed with Afghanistan. It was very difficult to untether myself. But I just did it, and it's all cool now. I have like a dentist here. Like, oh, you got a dentist? Yeah, it's it's like cool now. Yeah. I uh, someone once told me that um, uh, any decision you make is the right one. (laughs) That's right. So (laughs) it all just worked out. So you're telling me that um, the rough period was like you had to find a dentist, but then you figured out. No, I mean, I just what was hard about it, May? I should have written it down. There was definitely a period where. And still now, like, it's not like I've arrived. I'm struggling a lot. Like, I've been working on a story that I'm closing this week and next week. But this is a story that I've worked on for seven months. And whenever people say that they've been working on an investigation for seven months, it also means that they haven't been paid in seven months. Mm. And they haven't really had a life in seven months, right? Like, I just there was a period and it's tapered down now but there was a period where because the story that I'm working on now has sources all over the world in different time zones I just had my phone turned on at all times and would like sneak sleeps here and there Mm -hmm. and was constantly available and I did that for a good two months and nearing the end I really felt like I was going to lose my mind like I felt ill I felt sick and then it was like my body telling me to just chill for like five days (laughs) Can you tell me about the story? Yeah, I'm doing a Me Too story about the United Nations. Oh. Mm-hmm. For whom? The New Yorker. Wow. I know. Can we talk about it? When's it going to come out? It won't come out for another month. Okay. I mean, I will say about the, like, you're making it look really easy. The other day I was in the West Village and I was on a bench and this uh, delivery person comes up to me and he goes, excuse me, miss, um, I have to like unload these boxes. Is it okay if I do it next to you? I'm like, oh, no problem. I'm actually getting ready to leave. And he's like unloading boxes and he looks at me and he goes, oh, do you have the day off? And I was so offended that I said, why would you say that? And I realized I'm literally wearing my sunnies, <laughs> reading the NYRB, eating on ice cream, like on a weekday <laughs> on a bench near the park. And... And I said, no, like, I, I am working right now. And he's, like, just, like, looking at me as if I'm mad. And by way of explanation, I said, oh, no, I'm a writer. That's why <laughs> I'm doing this, which obviously makes no sense. <laughs> and I do think that a lot of what we do look really fun. Like, the public display, the public rendering of journalism is one that is very glamorous and exciting, but that's like 1%. Like 99%, I'm like in my bed transcribing like the 100th hour of interview, right? Or like in some shitty hotel room, like eating some garbage food or taking like a wet white bath or, you know, like all of that stuff doesn't really get told. Just like when uh, you're sitting on a bench having some ice cream. Yeah, that's exactly. Like, that's the journalist Little life. does he know. Or you just land in Kabul and... <laughs> find stories and no, friends. No, but, it's, that... but I, I told you I made like $10,000 the first year. I made no money. Were you ready for that though? Were you planning for that? I really, I don't think there was any planning involved. Like I have to go to a wedding later this summer and my friends were like, let's figure out the budget. I'm just like, what is that? I, I just, <laughs> that's not my strong suit. And so for example, like in Afghanistan, when I first had gotten there, I had no money. Obviously no one's like, Nathan was going to cover my expenses. So then I just had to kind of, I mean, it wasn't a deliberate thing, but I 
ended up just making friends with a lot of Afghans who then helped me occasionally. And they might like give me like a huge freelancer discount because they knew that at times they were making more money than I was. Like I remember this one assignment where legit my fixer got paid more and we like laughed about it. And that's real. Mm-hmm. Why'd you come home? Hmm. I guess this isn't home, but why'd you come back to the States? Because I felt like I was doing the same thing over and over again, and I wanted to try different things. What was the thing you felt like you were doing over and over again? You were doing the same story over and over again? Well, yeah, and it's hilarious. It's a story that I'll always do, I guess, but I had done a few civilian casualties investigations, Mm -hmm. and... The one came out this February, I think it was February or January, and um, I remember it came out, and then an editor emailed to say that was really great. Like, can you do something similar for our, us? And I just remember thinking, like, you have no idea what goes into that. I mean, that that was three years of my life. I made like five to six trips to a really shady part of the country, and that's the kind of trip that I don't think I would do. I mean, I a I can't do now because the roads are totally. It's like a fifty fifty chance of being kidnapped. I'm not going to take that risk. And I just felt like nothing was, nothing would come of these stories. And that was really depressing. I just like needed some time to like think about how I was spending my time. The MSF story, I did a story about an MSF hospital that was bombed in uh, northern Afghanistan. And I like killed myself over that story. The story is incredible. Just, I talked to all, I pulled all the strings, like whatever favor that I had accumulated in the favor bank over like how many of our years of living there, I cashed all of those. I just asked for favors with like, not favors, but you know what I mean? Like I asked, I would ask friends for interviews and information and there were certain documents we needed to get. I really sort of pushed hard for that. And you sort of put together the best available version of events and nothing happens. That's outrageous. I mean, that's the whole model that journalism is built on. What and can you, for people who haven't read that story, can you just like give me the brief synopsis, but also like what you took away from what you learned? So in October 2015, a city in northern Afghanistan called Kunduz was overrun. And in the what the military loves to call the fog of war, there was like urban combat and an AC-130 plane mistakenly attacked a hospital that was a working MSF hospital in the middle of the city and many many people died dozens and then that Thanksgiving the top US commander issued a statement blaming the gunners on the plane and the pilot and basically the crew the 13 14 men and women who flew that plane um, and absolved him and his office of all blames And initially, of course, everyone was following the story and they sort of promised to release their internal investigations soon, soon, soon. And then, you know, Christmas came and went and New Year's came and went and Nuru's came and went and that just never happened. And they only released it in April. But even the the copy that was released, it was redacted. um, And I'm doing follow ups on that now. And and we're learning that actually the public statement of that all the people being reprimanded are not true. Um, none of that really came to pass. And I really think that unless an American general, you know, has to, you know, go to court at The Hague, like unless that happens, I think hospitals will continue to be bombed like everywhere around the world. 
And that's a really depressing thing to like have to live with. Before you filed that story, before it came out, like it ran on the intercept. I remember reading it when it came out, but right before it did, what were your hopes for it? Like what did you <laughs> what did you want people to sit up in their chairs thinking about? I mean, it's delusional, but you hope that an event like that will at least inspire some kind of an anti-war movement in America. But in the absence of that, it's very difficult to imagine anything changing. And so then you kind of start to wonder, like, this brand of journalism that I've decided that I'm going to do, like, what is this for, really? You jump to the end, though. Before Hmm. it was out, an anti-war movement is one thing. Oh, right, before. But at... I wanted like the transcript of the pilots talking or the unredacted copy of the report. And I felt like if I could just get that and like show the world how terrible it is and how sort of screwed up the system is. Well, so that was what I came away from reading that story. It was just like, this is fucked. This is just completely broken Mm -hmm. and sloppy. Mm -hmm. But I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, you seem very disappointed by the response in it. Mm. And I'm wondering, maybe the answer is just that you were hoping it was going to start some larger movement, but I'm wondering what you hope just someone sitting like at their computer reading that story, what they would take away from it, what the mm. lesson would be. Like, what did you think that story said about war and how America is in the world and all of that kind of stuff? Just what's being done in our name, right? Like in the name of advancing democratic ideals. That's why we're allegedly in Afghanistan, right? Women's rights and democracy and free election and all that. But really what's being done in our name. And it's not pretty. And then when that comes out, it didn't have the impact that you wanted it to? I was so upset. I was like depressed for a little while. And then I forgot about it, obviously, and had to move on because I had to make money to pay rent. But yeah, it, it is depressing. It is depressing, and, and um, it's just unclear. And, I mean, journalism is a particular institution in America because of, you know, the fourth estate, this idea of journalism is an integral part of how democracy is meant to function. And so then you have this sort of heightened uh, status, and you feel like you have to, like, use your power for good. But I don't know. Maybe celebrity profiles are the way to go. I, I have no idea. It's unclear. <laughs> But having said that, I think a lot of the Me Too stuff that happened, that really sort of re-reminded me of why this is the best job and, and the incredible power that we do have. And it is an exciting thing. I mean, really, like, I don't know about you, but I felt like in my circle of friends, there was a real sort of pre and post Me Too moment yeah. in the way that we talk about power and gender and sexuality. And that happened because of reporters. That's really cool. Yeah. Why do you think it doesn't happen for this sort of foreign war correspondent stuff as much? Because it's othering. Like, we don't really care about people who are not like us. Right. That's why it matters that, like, Kabul is actually just a city that people live in. Yeah. I think so. Do you think that's the answer, though? It's just like it's too far away? Geographically, but also psychically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's just easier for. So I've been thinking about, like, why is it that 
Europe refused to take in refugees. Of course, there's the practicality of, I don't know, having certain sort of political stance and that not fitting into it. But I think I'll, on a more meta level, it's the question of like, if they took in refugees, it would be an admission of the fact that they failed. The narrative right now is that we're winning in Afghanistan or that we've won or whatever. And so I feel like there are just certain narratives that we establish and it's very difficult to undo them. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And then at some point, you spend enough years like trying to undo them and not having the impact that you want that I uh, think maybe you'll switch it up. Yeah, I mean, I'll always, you know, I was back in March. I have my stuff there. Like, I'll go back soon. It's a place that I'll always follow. But I do feel a need to sort of seriously recalibrate my effectiveness in like how I spend my time. <laughs> And so now you're doing a big Me Too story. <laughs> yes. I was at a party the other day and someone was like, oh, like, what's the, um, what do you normally cover? And I was like, oh, I guess I write about war crimes. And I was like, oh, that's really depressing. Um, what is, like, the story that you're working on now? I was like, oh, it's a Me Too story. And the person's like, okay, well, what's the last story you wrote about? I was like, oh, I wrote about my friend being murdered. Like, what is happening? <laughs> it's really dark. But, Yeah. Those are the things that occupy my mind right now. Why? Why do you think that's what you gravitate to? You're such an uh, optimistic person. I am. Any decision you I? make is, is the right decision. <laughs> Why do you think you gravitate towards those stories? I mean, I guess I could say something really trite about, like, you know, it reveals a human condition, like people under duress. In times of war, I think it you can justify a lot of things. And it inspires you to do things that you normally wouldn't necessarily, like be your boldest self or be your, I don't know, most amazing self or shittiest self. And it's really, it's like an immense privilege to be able to witness that. And I think that's where my slightly Pollyanna-ish vibe is coming from. I really, I think it's a crazy privilege that I get to do this. I just cannot believe that people let me into their homes and tell me stories and I get to write them down and like it's goes into the internet ether and like you read it and you're like hmm, that's interesting and like send it to your friend you know like that's an amazing thing that I get to do and that trust is something that I don't ever want to betray can we talk about uh Kim Wall yeah I assume lots of people listening know who she is but could you tell that story for a second mm -hmm. so Kim was a Swedish reporter who the way she called it she was interested in the undercurrents of rebellion she did these incredible stories that at first glance you would think why would I be interested in this but then you read on and she had this incredible way of making a really beautiful sort of bird's eye viewpoint about a really small thing and one of the stories that she was following took her onto a submarine in Copenhagen last summer and the person that she was there to interview ended up um I mean we didn't know this initially we thought she'd just disappear but it turned out that he had um tortured her and raped her and dismembered her and threw her remains into the water. And where were you when you heard? I was actually at Bobst, the NYU library. 
and I got these flurry of texts and phone calls from random friends around the uh, world. And I think a lot of her response was, initial response was, oh, I mean, Kim, like, she's, A, she's so independent and knows how to take care of herself, I wouldn't worry, and B, she's a really curious person and she follows her nose, and so... And I also see, actually, her phone's often dead, and so I just figured it was, like, a combination of those three things. And it was a Friday, I remember, and within hours, I realized something was not right. And so then spent the whole weekend on the phone, you know, parents, family, calling CPJ, other organizations, because I don't know, I don't even know if this is true, but I remember reading somewhere that the first three hours are important, and I'd had actually had another good friend's sister, actually, who was kidnapped in Kabul just earlier that year. So I had sort of gotten like a, you know, I knew what that entailed. And so it was just kind of crisis managing, I guess. And then I don't, I mean, I think two weeks later, her torso was found, if I remember. And when did you decide to report it out? Like right away. Right away. I mean, I don't think I used that word, reporting, but everything I was doing was reporting. And because it was more about like, we, I wanted to figure out what had happened. And I remember actually Patrick Radden Keefe wrote an article about some producer whose brother died in Lockerbie bombing. And there's a line where he says something like, investigating allowed him to shirk his grieving duties. And I really felt that way. <laughs> Even now, Talking about the story of what happened, I feel okay. But the other stuff is, yeah, it's still very hard. Like, I just have no words. How is it different than reporting another story? I just felt very invested in a way that I don't think I had before. And were you like, did you just need to know the answer? Yeah. And I mean, we still don't know. That's the worst part, right? What do you feel like you don't know? What happened? Like, I have a friend who's a doctor, and she was telling me her grandfather died, and he was a farmer, and he, he died on the field working. And she was really struck by how her mother was obsessed with the details of how many paces had he walked in what direction and how did he die and would he have known that he was dying and all of these questions and I think every single question you're asking is the same one which is did they suffer like you want to be able to measure their suffering because you think that will somehow help with the grieving process I don't know but I still now I just want to know what happened and it's like a real bummer that maybe we'll never know. Mm-hmm. Did you think you were going to figure it out? Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. The beginnings of any story, you're sort of imbued with this delusion of, oh, like, I mean, everyone else failed, but I will be able to shine some light on the story. Yeah, of course I did. Of course. I felt like I was best placed to, and... I think I maybe got the closest, but ultimately I don't know. Did you report it differently than you would report other stories? 
I think I was like my most maniacal self. <laughs> I didn't sleep. I, because of the time difference, I just, I remember like I would get up at three, four in the morning, meaning I hadn't slept the night before. And that's all I did. Just like being on the phone constantly or messaging, trying to like Google translate. I translated a whole book <laughs> from uh, Danish to English. I didn't do it myself, obviously. I farmed it out. But um, yeah, and like, when I wasn't, I would sort of just go on these like internet chat rooms where people would be talking about what happened and that was obviously very unhealthy and I don't advise that. Or if I wasn't reporting, I'm using air quotes, I'd just be going through like old texts that we'd sent each other or emails. And yeah, it was a really involved process. Do you think that, at least in like my version of the internet, yeah, it was really present? Do you think that like um, people got to know her in the way that you had? Like, I, I haven't had that experience. Someone close to me dying in kind of such a public way, and I'm I'm kind of interested in the gap mm. between your experience of her and how it played out. Like, I wonder whether there was a gap in that. That's such a good point. I mean, I remember the therapist I was seeing at the time saying that that is part of the grieving process of that jarring feeling you have between the person that you know to be true and this sort of public version of the person. And yeah, it was really strange. I felt like she became instantaneously a kind of a martyr and that left no room for Kim who is really funny and like annoying sometimes and really compassionate and jealous at times you know like the human version of her I felt like there was no space for and I think about that actually with regards to civilian casualties reporting and also the Me Too reporting as well where we are a society that demands perfection of our victims and like god forbid if a Me Too victim had like had sex with the assaulter once before or if the civilian casualties victim is you know a fighting age male or if like Kim had there was something shady about her I mean god forbid if any of those things had been true then um, it would have been really difficult to write a sympathetic story about them but why is that just because someone's a fighting age male doesn't mean that they deserve to be extrajudicially killed right so how do you uh, get that complexity into a story I mean so then I push for it so in the I did a drone strike story and the survivor, she'd been heralded as a kind of a living deity, but she was also a brat. And I wrote that into the story. Or, um, yeah, in the Me Too story that I'm working on now, same thing. I try to make sure that I'm not elevating these women into, yeah, living deities because they're not. And it's almost like, I mean, this happens with the gender stuff too, where people forget that oppression is self-regulating. We don't need men to be terrible to women. Like, women can be terrible too. And to assume that women don't have the capacity to be corrupted by power is to not give them the humanity that they deserve. I feel like um, one of the reasons I'm asking about that gap, I think, is because I was struck by, you wrote about Kim and you like wrote the story of your reporting for Wired and it's not a remembrance like it's a reported story there are turns there's like twists (laughs) it's true yeah and there wasn't really like it wasn't a remembrance it was not about 
like the complexity of your friend. Mm. It was what you had learned about what happened, even though you hadn't found it out. And I guess I was just interested in that approach and like how you get to that place. And when a lot of people are talking about your friend, how you resist the urge to go the other route. Well, the copy that I filed that ended up writing was, I think, three times longer than what obviously ended up being printed. And the other parts were about Kim. But it was in part, I just had to sort of get that on paper just to process things for my own self. And I think grieving inspires a lot of weird reactions in people. Some people become very territorial. Other people you know, turn inwards. Some other people feel the need to express themselves. And the instinct is to say, oh, well, you know, this remembrance, I mean, this is inaccurate because of these reasons or that person didn't even know Kim well or whatever. But I just don't think putting things into a hierarchy like that is useful. And in terms of the Kim that I knew, I, I think thinking about her is still very hard. Like, of course, like emotionally, but also just how I'm trying to place it in my head. And so I felt like I wasn't prepared to write about her in that moment. But you were prepared to go and investigate what happened. Yeah, because it's almost like I don't have to, like, it's again, it's like the shirking, grieving duty thing. Right. Like, those two things just aren't that connected. Somehow. Did what happened to her change your approach to reporting in general? No. (laughs) Do you want me to elaborate? Only if you want to. Oh, just that, like, I don't want to live my life governed by fear. What happened to her is an aberration. I mean, you can make a bigger point that, you know... A world that is terrible to women is the world that enabled for this to happen to her, yes, but I'm not going to start putting up certain strictures because I don't want that to happen to me. I have this thing I say a lot or think about a lot, which is basically like I think one like metric of happiness or something, like one way of being in the world is um, like the gap between the um, way you live your life and the values you believe in. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like um, like that answer was clear. And I see, no, it seems like you like live your life with some clarity. Yeah. I mean, I am still in therapy. Let's just like make sure that is clear. Maybe what I'm trying to ask, and I, this is really just getting back to like what I was asking you at the beginning, but to live that way, right? To just like follow your instincts to trust that that's going to work out. Are there any sacrifices in that? Like, do you feel like you have sacrificed in some way to do that? To make 10 grand your first year? (laughs) Do you you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. have you had to sacrifice to live that way? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. But it's just a matter of what you want more, right? What do you feel like you've given up? I have given up stability, I don't know what will happen tomorrow, let alone next week. Like, where are you living right now? Do you have an apartment here that you've rented for a year? I do, yeah. And and one in Kabul? No, it's it's like I have a box, like a metal box with all my stuff in it in Kabul. Um, I don't actually, the house was, um, it burned down actually a couple weeks ago, so I I don't even know if my box is still there. But anyways, hopefully it's still there. But that's the thing. I left half of my stuff in Kabul, and I haven't needed it in a year, so I actually don't need a lot of stuff. I think that helps. I don't have like an expensive, I don't have kids. I don't have like an expensive drug habit. It's everything that I do right 
now in this moment in my life is to serve the story. And that means that sometimes I'm not the best partner. I'm not the best friend. I'm, I'm a really terrible daughter, probably. If like my parents did like a satisfaction survey, I don't think I would rank really high. Yeah, I have, I have friends who are like buying houses and stuff, and I'm very far away from that. And what else have I sacrificed? I don't know. Like sometimes I let my body atrophy because I'm like on the road working all the time. So many things. How long do you think you can uh, keep that up? I've thought about this, actually. I think I can do it for, like, five more years. How old are you now? I'm 30. Okay. Yeah. Mid-30s is, like, the cutoff mark. Things will have to change. <laughs> yeah. Well, get the most out of these next five years, you know? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> really work your ass off. I'll try my best. <laughs> May, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors. MailChimp, go check out readthissummer.com. Read along with Shea Serrano and his friends. Also sponsoring the show this week, Casper, and the new show, You Can't Make This Up, a podcast from Netflix about their documentaries. Go check that out. If you like this show, you will like that one. Thanks to them. And thanks, of course, to May for uh, taking the time and christening the new studio with me. 300 episodes. Who would have thunk it? See you next week. <laughs>